all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. This week's podcast is all about human motivation at its simplest form from the perspective of one theory in psychology that is called transactional analysis. Now, I am obviously quite clearly not an expert on this subject. I first heard about transactional analysis from a podcast called The Blind Boy Podcast, which is this Irish guy um, in Ireland that makes a podcast called The Blind Boy. What, did I say that already? I did. <laughs> Blind Boy Podcast. The episode, I think that he's talking about transactional analysis, is called Creaking Ditch Pigeon, um, or it's the intro to cognitive psychology, parts one, two, and three. He's got a great fucking podcast regardless. Um, it's a good one to listen to if you're looking for another podcast. Um, and I'll have links to that on my website. But... Anyways, before we get into all that, I just wanted to give you a quick update uh, as to where we're at with our monthly challenges, because it's the start of a new month. And that means this month, we are calling it Freshuary. And that means for the entire month of February, we're only allowed to eat local produce and local meat and or dairy from local suppliers. So... uh, We're not allowed to go to any grocery stores. We're not allowed to buy anything from any corporations. Everything has to come from a local farmer's market or the local butcher. And no packaging. So we can't buy anything that comes inside a package. Everything has to be in its natural form and then we cook it at home unless it's been processed locally like uh, local yogurt or uh, this morning I just bought some bread that is produced from local uh, products and then baked here on the Gold Coast. Um, So... That's it. It's very exciting. We've scanned our bodies um, on our scanner at the gym to see where we're sitting at, and then we'll report back at the end of the month to see how much this impacts our health and overall body uh, composition. I'm training. I'm kind of maintaining the same amount of normal training that I've been doing. Uh, I've added in some sparring again to help the girls out with a fight camp, and it's been so fucking fun just doing Muay Thai again for no reason other than because I love doing it. It's such a nice feeling. I, it, I think I fell out of love with Muay Thai for a little while there because it was, it felt like a job and it felt like a chore and I felt like it was the only thing I could do. And I was starting to question my motivations. And now I just am having a lot of fun. So, you know, rolling with that for now. Um, manuary's over. Thank fuck. What a nightmare. We knew it was going to be tough. Like we definitely knew that that was going to be a tough month. But essentially what we did was five dating apps in four and a half weeks. Uh, we had to have a different dating app each week. I think as a summary overall, Bumble was the best one that we used, and then Tinder, and then all of the rest of them were pretty average. I didn't really uh, lock in much of those. Um I spent, I have got this screen time report on my phone and I spent eight and a half hours per week on Tinder. I spent 11 on Bumble for that week. And then it was a steady decrease after that. I don't really, I didn't keep track of any of the amount of time I spent on it. I normally spend about an hour and a half 
on average on my phone per day. And during the Bumble, Tinder, and Plenty of Fish weeks, I spend an average of three hours on my phone a day. So that doubled the usage of my phone per day. Um, I've got a limiter on my phone so that I'm only allowed to be on social media, which is Instagram, Facebook, and Messenger included together for a half an hour a day. And then it just tells me a little notification that I've been on it for a half an hour. I can either ignore the notification for another 15 minutes or just exit out of the app. And it's great. I love it because if there's any point, like I don't use social media very often. It's not, I'm not a big fan of it, but I'll just sit on there, I'll post something or whatever, and then I'll just be sitting there staring at nothing for ages. And then it's really nice. This little notification comes up and goes, uh, by the way, you're wasting your life. And I go, oh, yeah, sweet. Now <laughs> it just kind of pulls me out of the hole, which is nice. And then if I have to do any work on it, I just ignore it and, and do whatever I was doing, posting something or whatever, and then go back about my life. So it's kind of a nice thing. I, I really like it. If you have an iPhone and you have the latest update, it's just in your settings under screen time. And yeah, I think it's awesome. So uh, yeah, fuck. I don't know. Um, I think it was good the way that we did it because we did the first, the first two apps that we did were the best ones. And I can see how addictive they are because you've got this kind of like infinite list of potential people that are going to love you just on a pile. And then all you have to do is just say yes or no. And then like fucking the pokey machines every once in a while one of them matches and you get this like thrill of excitement that this is going to be possibly your new husband and then uh two seconds later you match with someone else and it just keeps going and it's just this like constant high up and down and excitement of like new things that are appearing in front of your head and um I'm glad that those were the first two because I got really over using a dating app by the end of the month and uh, I don't feel at all like I miss it. We've said to ourselves at the beginning of January that we weren't, we were going to take an entire month detox off of all dating apps after this month. So even if we really liked them and we wanted to continue on, we aren't allowed to for this whole month. And I honestly don't have the desire whatsoever to go back on <laughs> any of them now. Um, but yeah, so there's this gross feeling, like you, like especially inside Tinder and Bumble, or pretty much any of them, while you're, say you're messaging somebody inside the app, while you're waiting for them to message back while you're having this conversation, this is my own fault, actually. I turned all the notifications off on my phone, so I wasn't getting notifications if I got a message in any of the apps. And I do that, actually, in general for my whole social media, because I don't want it to occupy my life. So I wouldn't know that someone had messaged me back unless I was physically inside the app. So if I was talking to somebody, I would stay inside the app, and while I'm waiting for them to answer me back, I just am looking at the stack of people, and I'm just saying yes and no to people the whole time, meanwhile talking to somebody and then saying yes and no to people. So by the time they've messaged me back, I've possibly matched with like three other people, and they all suddenly seem more exciting than the person who's already talking to me. So it could be going great. Like this person could be a really interesting, great human. But because of this like infinite world of potentials, I am distracted by all of the other options. So yeah, man, I, I was just creepy. And I think social media in general, including these apps, feels addictive and simultaneously unsatisfying. Like you really need it, but at the same time, it totally doesn't feel good. And it's because it creates this kind of illusion of infinite infinite potentiality and it's like infinite level of connections and recognition that you're going to get. But then the actual feedback that you get is only this tiny fraction of what your brain imagined was possible. 
And so it barely scratches the itch, so you go and like keep collecting more connections. Um, there's actually a really good reason for this, though, and that's the point of what I'm trying to talk about in the podcast today. It's like, what is the underlying motivation for human behavior? Why do we think we need stuff? And why do we get bored or unsatisfied when we have what we finally said we wanted? Like, you know, you, you know yourself, you do the same thing. You dream of getting this thing, and I can't wait to have it. As soon as you get it, you get it in your hands, and it feels fucking awesome, and you're so excited that you got it, and then you don't give a shit about it in six months. We all do it. So there's a thing um, in psychology, this theory in psychology called transactional analysis, and I'm going to uh, abbreviate it to TA for most of this podcast because I am sick of hearing that word in my own voice. So TA deals with this very thing. Uh, and there's a lot to it. So today I'm only going to go into like one tiny little aspect of it. And then I'll probably break this into a couple other podcasts in the future, especially if this is something of interest to you guys, then I'm going to keep going with it. Um, because it's really complex and it's really interesting. The, the entire school of thought around this thing deals with all human interaction. And it eventually leads up into these really cool um, manipulative games that human beings play with each other. And even if you think you are this like super interesting and uh, unique human, you're actually just playing a game that social psychologists could probably predict your behavior in five minutes. <laughs> it's really cool. So um, anyways, if you want to read more about this after I've done talking about it and you want to find more about it, uh, the guy who created this theory is called Eric Byrne, and he wrote a really cool book called Games People Play. And uh, the book is from the 60s, I think. So his theory was around in the 50s. And it's obviously changed a lot since then. But it's a great book. And it's full of all kinds of like funny social colloquialisms that happened in the 1960s. Like one of the um, one of the names of the game is called uh, Frigid Woman. <laughs> which is pretty funny. So if you're kind of like gender, non-binary, or, or sensitive to gender, gendered topics or something, you might find it a bit offensive. But there's nothing offensive about, about it. It's just uh, observational human behavior. And I actually kind of like how he uses these terms uh, that we can all recognize and understand because it doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook. You're actually, you know, like having a chat with your mates. So anyways, why does anyone do anything? Is there like this common thread inside of each human being that just goes, fucking get up, go do something? And it turns out, according to social psychologists, that there is. And it's really simple. So there's this like entire industry right now online of the insta-famous social influencers that tell you like, chase your dream, live your best life, be yourself. Um... And whatever that means, obviously, we, it's impossible to define a self <laughs> to the best of our abilities. I try and do it every day, and I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So um, it's confusing to me that anyone would be like, this is the way to be your authentic you, you know? I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know who that is. But there's an industry for it, and it's really popular because human beings, in my opinion, are addicted to potentiality. Like we crave newness constantly. And so the world's moving as fast as it is all around us. There's constantly offering you new things to watch on uh, Netflix. There's more shit on the internet constantly. There's more new phones, new technology, new, new everything. So it's just increasing this appetite for us to constantly be replacing things that we have with new, fresher, better stuff. 
And also, like when you look at a baby or a puppy, that feeling that comes off over the inside of you that like this is just an untainted, beautiful, pristine ball of potentiality. That's what that feeling is. It's not that you're in love with the baby necessarily. You're in love with the potential thing that this baby could become. Because you could take that exact same baby and fast forward 25 years and then they are a parking attendant at Burley Heads and they give you a fucking $75 ticket for being three minutes over on your meter and you're not going to care about that baby as much as you did as it was sitting in its swaddling clothing staring at you with a blank, empty gaze because it hasn't been tainted by life yet. (laughs) So the shit part is, like an ex-alcoholic turned sex addict, we're in the habit of transferring this addiction to potentiality into an addiction for stuff and status and things that we need in the real world, which unfortunately, as I said before, loses its charm almost immediately after you get it. We haven't satisfied the addiction, that need for potentiality. We've just plugged our emotional holes for the moment until the leak gets so bad that we have to keep plugging them up again with something new. So... What about chasing your dream? I mean, if, if it's meaningless to have a dream and if it's nonsense, you don't know who you are, so you don't know what you want, then why bother? Surely chasing a dream for, say, clean drinking water is better than wanting to get a new Rolex. Like, sur- surely some dreams are better or more, um, I don't know, valid in the aspiring world than something materialistic. Possibly, it's true. But the dream... I think can be just as cheap as getting a new Rolex, even if it's totally altruistic, because the dream itself is basically irrelevant. Why you have the dream, I think, is more important. So, uh, what is it? Well, I mean, what is a dream anyway? Like, so what is this thing? This influencer of the world wants me to have my dream and live it, right? I guess, I mean, f- literally, specifically, we talk about a dream. A dream is that weird state of psychosis that we go into eight hours a night, every night, while we're unconscious. And it's something that happens to us, not something that we create. We say that our brain is creating this thing, like I had a dream, but the dream actually had you. The dream happened to you. You're not in control of it. And even if you were in control of it, say you're really good at lucid dreaming, you're not actually you've basically taken the infinite possibility of that dream and limited it to your cute, sweet little imagination. So you think, oh, fuck, I could fly right now because I'm in a dream. But you only know the concept of flying because it's a concept that exists here in reality. You, if you let the dream unfold on, as it may, it will do a crazy number of infinite, weird, possible things that you couldn't even possibly conceive of. And it's amazing when you come back into the real world and try to explain a dream to somebody and you're like, I don't know, he was this guy that I met at the supermarket and then he turned into my brother and then all of a sudden my brother was my dog. You know, this shit doesn't make any sense. But psychologically, there's got to be some reason for why we do this thing, but nobody really knows what the fuck it is. So the dream, I guess, like in the second term, the second way that we use that term, the first term is this literally weird state of being when we're asleep. The second use of this term is the dream that you want to chase, right? And I think what we're referring to there is the infinite possibilities, the limitless, boundaryless possibilities of you dreaming up what you want to be and then trying to get that thing. It's the potential 
of you being something that you imagine right now would satisfy your desires. So what was your dream as like I, as a little kid though? You know what I mean? What was your dream five years ago? These things are what you can conceive of, what potential you can drill down and conceive of in this immediate moment. And if you've got low self-esteem, your dreams are going to be probably pretty small, pretty minor. Like I just dream of not being miserable at my job every day, but I don't really have the confidence to do anything else about it. So I'm just going to stick with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. What I mean is that your current state of being and your experience of reality and your perception of reality are going to dictate what dreams you create for yourself, right? So this isn't the infinite possibilities of potentiality out there. It's the lure of potentiality minus all of your own fears. Like, so when I was a little kid, my dream was to be, I at the same time wanted to be famous, but I also wanted to be a doctor. And so I like merged the two of those things together and decided that I was going to play a doctor on TV. <laughs> That that was going to be my, that's my dream, which makes perfect sense, obviously. I could pretend to help people and be super famous at the same time. You know what I mean? So like, what was your dream to be a fireman? Have, have you followed through that dream now? Imagine if your dreams never changed. Imagine if you decided at five that you were going to be a fireman and then that's it. That's you for the rest of your life. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe some of you are doing that. That's fucking awesome. But if you aren't, you know. That's probably okay, too. And keeping that in mind, too, on that same vein, your dream of being a fireman is possibly my nightmare. And my dream of being a famous doctor on TV is possibly your nightmare. So living the dream is a really hard thing to define. It's especially hard to define because when you actually start living your dream, the dream itself was this kind of like projected infinite possibilities, world of potentiality that didn't have limits and setbacks. Whereas the actual dream, when it becomes a dream in reality, is going to have a lot of nuanced detail that you probably didn't see coming when you are envisioning living your dream. And it's a necessary thing too. In order for you to have a goal to pursue, you want to kind of have a few risk blind spots so that you don't notice the risk as much as the, the goal, the motivation to get to the end needs to kind of filter out some of those doubts and risks on the way. But the problem is once you actually get there, you're going to have to come face to face with the fact that, yeah, there's going to be some elements of your dream that aren't exactly as much as, or as good as you wanted them to be. And you're going to find a reason why it's not perfect, even if it is perfect. And that's just because you're a human being and it's what you do. So here's my theory on why that happens. Um, at our core, we've got two fundamental fears. I think that these two fears drive every other fear that we have in our entire life. Every single fear that you could come up with in your head probably can be traced back to, at its core, these two things. And they are the fear of the unknown and the fear of the finite. And this is the confusion of the fucking entire human condition because those two things are contradictory terms. They're exact opposites. So the things that we fear the most, we fear the opposite of it in exact equal measure. Let me try and explain myself. So like, here's a very light example for you to mull over. Take, for instance, your own death. We know that we're going to die one day but we don't know what happens after that. So we generally tend to sort of cling to life 
because the fear of the unknown on the opposite side of death is stronger than our desire to know for sure what actually happens when we die. But death is also final at the same time. So as far as we know, that's the end. And we're afraid of the bleak nothingness that the end of something brings just as much as we're afraid of the unknown infinite possibilities behind it. So then suddenly the fear of the unknown seems a little bit less scary than the fear of the finite. Because what if the thing after the end is actually better than the thing before the end? And so then we get a little bit of hope, like, oh, yeah, maybe the fear of the unknown's not so bad. Maybe I'm going to go to heaven. Maybe there's going to be a million virgins or whatever, all the lovely grapes that I can eat in the afterlife on a cloud. But then the fear of the unknown is very cunning and wily, and it comes back and it goes, yeah, but what if you burn in hell for eternity? And then you go, oh, fuck, the fear of the unknown is actually way scarier than just nothingness. So we are in a constant push and pull between what we're afraid of what we don't know and afraid of knowing everything completely to the end. So we're afraid of what we can't see coming, but if we already know the ending, then there'd be no reason to exist and there's nothing to drive us forward. So we're stuck in this like infinite balancing act of trying to seek security from the chaos of the unknown while also constantly seeking new things to avoid becoming stagnant and just wasting away in empty nothingness. So my theory on motivation is that our basic core drive is to structure our lives in a way that keeps us in kind of like a harmonious balance between the terror and excitement of the unknown and then the security slash boredom of the known. So in order to structure our time while we're doing this balancing act, we have to, we kind of like end up developing tastes for things that matter to us, things that keep us excited or scare us or make us safe or make us feel bored. We hold on to these things as long as they keep us entertained and then we move on when we just like can't deal with it anymore. You might meet your soulmate and be happy and in the beautiful honeymoon phase and then find out in a year that they have a second family in another country. And the only thing that we know, <laughs> the only thing that you know at that time is that nothing ever stays the same, that everything is constantly changing. So it might sound a little bit scary, but it's actually the fun part of the game. It's like, you just think about how much freedom actually comes from that realization. That no matter how shit your situation is, it is guaranteed to change. No matter how good your situation is, it's guaranteed to change. Your life doesn't depend on achieving the dream or achieving the goal or achieving the outcome. Your life depends on the way you balance your chaos and order. So if you fail at your dream... So like, it's like the worst case scenario. You've got this dream and you think that your life depends on it, right? And oh, I've got to get this million dollar house or whatever the fuck it is. I've got to get this thing done. If you fail at that, then you get a chance to dream up a new dream and start over again and learn from the shit that you learned. Then if you go the opposite direction and you get everything you ever dreamed of, you success at your dream, you're completely, you, you, you success, you get success at your dream. You successfully achieve your dream. Once you're there, you're going to get bored and you're going to feel stagnant. And then you're going to start dreaming up new dreams and start dreaming all over again. So the whole point is that the meaning isn't inside the dream. The meaning is in the experience of getting to have them. So a dream could be something as silly as like 
getting your mom to laugh when she's in a bad mood, or it could be something that's been forced on you, like trying to figure out how to feed your family if you live in extreme poverty. We're designed to solve these problems and then survive. And the reward isn't necessarily survival. I mean, especially imagining people that live in really fucking shit situations. The reward isn't like, yes, I get to live another day. It's that experience of learning what you got to learn while you were doing the thing, how much you can learn in the process. If you learn, then ideally you get better at solving problems and you possibly have this kind of like hope of being able to survive better in the future. There's a great book about this called Man's Search for Meaning, and it's uh, written by a guy called Viktor Frankl, and he was a survivor of uh, the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, and his whole theory is that by having hope and having this meaning, a human being can pretty much survive anything. And that's a pretty fucking shit situation to be in, so I think he probably knows what he's talking about. Um, so... Anyway, what I was saying before, that I think the content of the dream and even its outcome is not necessarily the most important thing. It doesn't matter like what your dream is. It's the reason why you have that dream and what's driving you to achieve it that actually matters. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more. So what I'm talking about here, it's not what's the goal, it's what's the motivation behind the goal. Um, if I use that same example I was talking about before, which was um, making sure that your town's got clean drinking water, then you know like that pretty much sounds like a wholesome thing to do, a very altruistic, you're trying to save your town, your town doesn't have drinking water, you need to get it right. But say, for example, there's an election coming up and you're about to, you're running for a political office. And by getting your town drinking water, you are guaranteed to get that spot in the election. And the reason why you want to get that spot in the town council or whatever is because you're trying to beat the dumb asshole that was mean to you at school and beat you up at school or whatever. So the dream is actually getting back at the bully at your school who was an asshole to you 10 years ago. Winning the town election and getting the town clean drinking water are just side products of the eventual actual real motivation for the goal. So yeah, maybe the town does get clean drinking water if you are successful at it. But how long for? Because your goal wasn't to get the, ca- the town drinking water, you probably shortcutted, you probably fucking cut some corners and paid some people off to, with a bit of hush money to just get yourself elected because the goal was to get yourself elected and mudsling the other guys so that you could win. It wasn't about the, the clean water. So the problem with setting goals and motivating ourselves to achieve them is not that our goals are necessarily good or bad or that we're lazy. It's our inability to be honest with ourselves about why we're doing what we're doing when we're doing it. So how the fuck do you go about doing that? How do you know what you really want? This is, uh, yeah, it's almost as hard as trying to figure out what you are. You know what I mean? What is yourself? What does yourself want? Who the fuck knows? But there's luckily lots of smart people out there in the world that have come up with all kinds of theories to help us get there. So I'm going to try and give you some tools here. So if we go back to my example of me as a little kid, why did I want to be famous? At the time, it probably just like seemed like it was a bit of fun and I could do lots of cool things and wear pretty dresses and have people give me a lot of attention. But I mean, if I'm totally honest and looking at it, it was because I was lonely and I felt like if more people knew who I was, they would pay attention to me, listen to me, validate me. 
and maybe understand me. And I'd feel a bit less lonely and meaningless and empty in my existence. But since that dream operated in dreamland where everything was, you know, magic and unicorns, it's missing all of the actual nuanced details that would come with the reality of being a famous doctor on TV, which are obviously one, I wouldn't be skilled as a doctor at all. Um, being famous is a scary fucking thing when you think about it. No one gives a shit about who you are. They only care about the you that they've imagined that you are from what they've seen on TV or the internet or whatever. And you're constantly in the public eye. So the world is like watching you, waiting to catch you at being something other than what they expect you to be. So there's this like unnatural expectation for you to be something that other people want you to be. And they're constantly watching you. And the end result is isolation, shame, and this absolutely necessary development of like a false persona that goes out there in the world and deals with the human world. And that thing can be adjusted to the current social climate so that you don't feel, you know what I mean? So you can sell your brand or whatever. So you can survive and match the social expectations that are required of you. And, and in saying that, you're not the only one doing it, right? So as soon as you become famous, you've got access to other famous people that are going through the same shit. So you have a bit of camaraderie camaraderie, I guess, there and be able to talk this through with other people who are going through the same problem. But they also have the same issue. None of them are satisfied with their current position on the social ladder because it's not you on the ladder. It's the you that the public wants you to be on the ladder. So it's inherently isolating and lonely. Everyone at the bottom is like desperate to get to the top because they feel like if they can finally get up to the top, they can finally relax. They don't have to try so hard. But then the people at the top are constantly having to balance that like this disappointment of finally achieving the top of the social famous people ladder. And then the disappointment of like what that actually feels like, how isolating and lonely it is up there. And then underneath them, they've got all these like hungry rising stars that are kind of like constantly clawing at them to get up to the top as well. So they have to constantly defend their position. It's exhausting. It's a nightmare. So being a famous doctor on t TV might have achieved my dream of being a famous doctor on TV, but that certainly didn't fix the initial ache for connection and understanding that was actually driving my dream to be famous in the first place. And in fact, unfortunately, the end result is exactly the opposite. I suddenly now am just a lonely, isolated, pretend doctor in a world of incomprehensible expectations put on me by myself and the world around me. So when you actually look at it, my dream of being a famous doctor on TV was a model that I built to satiate a need for connection at the time. That should have been my dream. If I could put it in a phrase, it would have been, I have a dream one day of being fulfilled in the work that I do by connecting honestly to people around me so I don't like, resort to embarrassing social seizures where I demand to be given attention for existing because my life feels lonely, <laughs> lonely and meaningless. And the thing is, lovely thing about this is, I'm not the only one. This appears to be a really common human need, and so common, in fact, that it forms the foundation for Eric Burns' uh, theory of social psychology, which he called transactional analysis, uh, or TA. So transactional analysis is a me method of 
uh, psychoanalysis and therapy that focuses on how people interact with each other and themselves in order to better understand human behavior. Um, there are two levels to this. One is the social level, what you can see, you know, two people interacting with each other or multiple people interacting with each other. And then the individual level, which is what's going on in each of their individual psyches during and after and before the transactions, or sorry, the interactions. So Eric's theory is the foundation for all human interaction is what he calls social intercourse. And the purpose of social intercourse uh, is recognition. That all we really want is to be recognized. Um, in a previous podcast, it was episode, um, I don't remember, episode 34. It's the social masturbation episode. I was talking about the effects of social isolation in rats after birth and how badly it fucked up the pups. If they didn't get licked or cuddled by their mom after they were born, the rats grew up to be have really extreme social behavior problems, behavioral problems, and that actually led to secondary generations of behavioral problems in the rats after that. Um, so humans actually are no different. And since we have complex language and social structures, we've also developed methods of getting that affection in not just physical, but also non-physical ways through our social interactions. And a rat, unfortunately, doesn't necessarily have that. They do have social, complex social interactions with each other, but the physical touch of their mother was a huge indicator for their future growth. And human beings are no different. It's exactly the same thing in a human, but we also just kind of have the added complex factor of a social network around us and all of these things. And now a fucking internet social network, which is a whole nother level on top of that. So in transactional analysis, each interaction between people is what they call a transaction. And I think that's funny because a transaction is exactly really when you think about it, what it comes down to. In the same way that we hand over money for goods and we get the money, we get the equal value, I guess, or so we assume equal value thing back from the money that we hand it over, it's kind of the same concept in a social interaction. So uh, each transaction could be something as simple as two people just waving at each other. That's one transaction. It's kind of the base unit of social interaction. And the currency that they exchange instead of money is what in TA they call a stroke and this is like as in stroking a cat like petting something rather than you know like not having a brain a stroke in your brain um it's probably I imagine where this the term stroking your ego comes from because it's the same thing that's that is exactly what you're doing you're stroking somebody and the reason why he uses the word stroke is because it is a replacement for the physical touch that we crave from our mother or from somebody that cares about us, we are getting it in a social way, in the same way that somebody could you know, give you a little pat on the head and make you feel better. A nod is an example of a very simple stroke. So a stroke itself is purely recognition that you exist. A nod from a stranger when you walk past them is enough to reinforce the fact that you exist and that the stranger has acknowledged that fact. According to transactional analysis, the majority of human behavior can be attributed to, attributed, <laughs> can be attributed to this very single desire. And they call it, uh, when you're in a deficit, if you're missing it, they call it recognition hunger or stroke hunger. Just in the same way, if we don't get enough food, 
we're going to start craving food and needing it. It's the same thing. If we don't get enough recognition or enough strokes, we're going to start craving it and needing it. Your early childhood experiences can have a huge impact on your desire to be stroked in the exact same way that it impacts that rat in isolation. So if you haven't got the recognition that you think you need, you're going to find a way to get it, good or bad. And this is where pathology tends to come from in psychology. So um, we'll give you an example of like a simple interaction at the grocery store. It could have, you know, fucking 10 transactions in it. And each one of those transactions is going to be giving and receiving strokes. Um, in TA, they don't actually get into this concept of like a stroke balance, like whether you're in the positive or the negative of strokes. But I'm going to lay it out this way in terms of like a currency exchange with a mathematical model so that it kind of paints a good picture of what I'm trying to get at. Um, so, for example... You finish work one evening and you go to the grocery store. As you pull into the parking lot, you wave at the car that's passing that lets you into their parking spot. That's one transaction and you spent one stroke looking at them and waving at them. They wave at you back and so you receive one stroke back. So stroke balance is even. So that's okay. Then you go up the escalator into the shop and you nod and smile at three people that are coming down the escalator the opposite direction to you. That's three transactions, and you gave out three strokes. Two of them nodded and smiled back. But one of them stared up at the ceiling as soon as you caught their eye. So you got two strokes back, and you suffered a little loss at this fucking socially awkward person that stared away from you. So this one here is an example of a negative stroke. So the first two were positive strokes. It's that reciprocal, yep, I see you, you see me. And then the negative stroke was you got recognized as a human because they definitely reacted when they saw you, but it wasn't a positive stroke. They didn't smile. They just looked away from you. They could have even possibly frowned a little bit and looked away from you. And interesting, it turns out in his research, Eric found out that people that receive nothing at all are actually worse off than people that receive a negative stroke. So um, even really bad negative strokes, like someone telling you to your face that you're a pathetic loser, is actually still less psychologically damaging than someone who just pretends like you don't exist at all. Um, since what, Because really it makes sense, because what you want at the end of the day is recognition. So if you can't get a positive stroke, you're going to do what you can to get any kind of stroke back to confirm that you are a real thing that exists. Um, so in that example, say that person looked away, what tends to happen then in the inside of your psyche is that you're going to come up with a reason for why they behave that way. Because it wasn't the answer that you expected, you're going to line it up with uh, other experiences you've had in your life where that kind of thing has happened, and you're going to tell yourself whatever story makes the most sense in the context. Say you've got uh, positive self-esteem and you've been mostly attractive for your whole life, when that person looked away from you, in your head, the story that your brain's going to tell you is like, oh, cute. They thought that I was super hot and they got shy and they looked away from me. That's nice. Um, and so then you kind of like naturally restore your stroke balance because you tell yourself a story that you believe is true. If it's the opposite and you've always thought that you were quite disgusting your whole life, that when you smiled at that person and then they looked away from you, you instantly will go, oh, God, gross. I shouldn't have looked at them. What an idiot. Why did, how dare I even think that I could have been on the level to look at that person? So these are an example of what they call like uh, stroke filters where you are going to interpret the interactions with other people based on your previous life experiences. But I'll get into that again in a little bit more. 
So um, now that you've got into the shop now, you're focused on getting your food and you're not thinking too much about other people. Um, possibly you're on a new health kick and you're trying to appear healthy in front of everybody. So you're just like kind of filling your cart up with a bunch of vegetables, but you couldn't resist the freshly baked cookies as soon as you walked into Kohl's. So they're on the bottom of your cart and you're kind of like quickly trying to pile kale and spinach up on top of them so that no one can see that you're buying cookies. And then you pass by somebody and they see you and they kind of eyes flick down to your cart. And in your head, you go, ah, fuck, they saw the cookies, they didn't know what I'm trying to do. You give them a little meek smile, and then they just look away from you. So now the story that you've invented in your head, again, this is, a, this is that stroke filter, is that you're like, nah, I'm trying to be a good person, but you know, that I'm, you know that I'm lying. And then you go, ah, fuck, they knew. And that person, who the fuck knows what's going on inside their head? But in your head, you go, oh, my God, they found me out. I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. So now suddenly... One person looked away from you on the escalator. Now this person's looked away from you at the grocery store once you walked in. Now your stroke balance is at a negative two. You gave out two strokes and you got two negative reactions and, and or not the reactions you were expecting. So now you're at two. Negative two, I should say. Then you turn the corner out of the veggie section and you're on your way towards the dirty meat animal section and you see somebody that you recognize from the gym. And this is such a funny thing. I don't know if this happens to everybody else, but if I see somebody outside of the normal environment that I normally see them at, I immediately like get this hot shame that I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to say hello to them or not. <laughs> like, oh, do, I, do I look away? Do I say hi? Do I not? I don't know. Um, and so at this moment, let's say we'll go back to this example. You're at negative two. You're already feeling a little bit embarrassed that you exist because you've just had two kind of weird interactions. Very subtle, but slightly weird. So because you're at negative two, you look down and you pretend like you didn't see the person because they haven't seen you yet. You pretend like you didn't recognize them and you're just going to let them come talk to you if they're going to. Otherwise, you're going to pretend like it never happened. Then out of nowhere, they walk up to you and they go, oh, hey, Lorna from the gym, right? And you go, oh, oh yeah. Hey there, how you doing? You just got five strokes from them because they remembered your name. They came up to you out of nowhere and said hello, and they asked how you're doing. But you, you selfish cunt, didn't remember their name. But you did ask them how they are. So let's say you got five strokes for that one. You gave back only four. And now you see this little flicker of hurt across their face, and they go, uh, yeah, I'm pretty good, thanks. And then they look around for something else to say because they now are down one stroke to you. And they're not going to give you any more until you make up the deficit. So you start scrambling around. And you go, oh, oh, cool. That's good. Hey, um, I remember last week at the gym you had to leave early because you had to take your mom to the hospital. Is everything okay? How did the surgery go? You fucking did it, didn't you? So then all of a sudden their whole face lights up. They feel validated. They feel recognized. You just gave them back... I don't know, 12 strokes because you remembered all these details about their life and their family and they respond with something great like, oh yeah, oh thank you so much for remembering. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, she did great. The surgery went well, everything's fine and she's actually going to be back in action in no time. It's great. And then, yeah, all right, so you did good. They give you a big smile, you give them a big smile and a stranger comes by is trying to get past you to the other packets of dead meat behind you and you go, 
hey, you know, it was great to see you. Hopefully I'll see you at the gym. And they go, yeah, you too, Lorna. Really great to see you. I'll see you soon. And you walk away. Great. So now you saved it. You did a good job. And you left with an even stroke balance. So this could go on forever, but you get what I'm saying, right? Every time you have these interactions, like every fucking day, you could be having millions of interactions with people and, and giving them, taking millions of different strokes. And each interaction leaves us with a sense of how we feel about ourselves in the world. We feel good when things are in balance and we feel bad when we've either expended too many strokes or not given in, or not getting enough uh, on our own. So then the negative sensations that kind of come from these strokes could determine our behavior in the next interaction. Like, for example, when we saw the person at the grocery store that we recognized from the gym, um, we, you know, you kind of end up being a bit more shy and a bit more awkward because you've just had two negative interactions. But because then you just came out of it with this really positive interaction, you did a good thing and you remembered this person, you might be more likely to see the next person you see at the grocery store and say hello to them. So the thing goes on forever. Um, Now, if you have consistently negative interactions and you are constantly feeling out of balance with your stroke balance, it what ends up happening is that your kind of internal filters get turned on. So it's like you have an internal stroke machine that your psyche comes up with and starts telling you stories about the way the world is so that you can feel better about what's happening externally. Uh, This is where things can get really fucking complicated. So if you, say, for example, over time learn that strangers look away from you when you smile at them and it makes you feel invisible then over time you're going to start to believe that you are invisible in those situations. So you develop what they call those stroke filters, which are biases about who you think you are in relation to other people in the world. So now you're suddenly biased that you're going to be invisible if you smile at somebody, so you never bother to smile at anybody. And then that person walking towards you goes, God, what a rude bitch. That that girl just frowns at everything. Fucking... Smile. Your face looks prettier when you smile, babe. Anybody ever had that, by the way? Um, Yeah, so there's a reason why you don't smile. Maybe every time you smile at someone, a guy tries to make out with you. I had that. I literally actually had that happen to me once. I, um, when I moved here, I moved from a very small town into the Gold Coast. So I came from a town of like maybe 10,000 people in the mountains where everyone's friendly to each other. Everyone knew each other. When you go out to a bar, everyone's talking to everybody. Everyone's smiling at everybody because it's a small community. When I first came to the Gold Coast, I had a boyfriend But I came to the Gold Coast and we'd go out to the bar and I was just really chatty and friendly and open and nice to people. And I'd be chatting away at somebody at the bar. And I had two different occasions where a guy just kissed me on the mouth out of nowhere. (laughs) And granted, I mean, everyone's a drunk at the bar and I'm giving off this like happy, friendly vibe. But I had to really realize what the fuck was going on here because I was putting out this thing like, oh, I'm really open and excited and wanting to talk to you because I didn't realize that the normal behavior in a city type environment is to size people up for quite a while before you give out intimate details and be really touchy and friendly. So anyways, I learned that pretty quick. But so... um, This negative filters... So that's just kind of like a silly example. But uh, a negative stroke filter will actually turn into what they call a script. This is your internal script for how you are your whole life. So when you've developed this script, just like an actor in a play, you can't deviate from the script. 
Once you've told yourself this script, you're stuck with it. So the problem is if you are not aware that you're being run by a script, you are essentially just saying lines out of a script rather than making authentic reactions to the things that are happening to you. Um, So for example, if you've been told your whole life that you're pretty, but you're stupid, then if somebody compliments your great idea, you're not going to actually hear that compliment. You're going to dismiss it or you're going to explain it away inside your head because it contradicts with your version of reality. But if somebody said that you looked really good while you were presenting your idea, you're going to take that one on board. You will accept the things that confirm your own beliefs about yourself and you will deny or avoid the things that don't match up with your idea of yourself. It's pretty fucking crazy, right? So even if you had an objectively balanced day, like say we had a little computer uh, on our Google glasses that counted the amount of strokes that we gave and received in a day, at the end of the day, your actual internal perception of the strokes that you gave and received will be different than the objective count of strokes that you gave and received in a day. The brain is a tricky, tricky bitch. (laughs) So... One of the main points of transactional analysis is for the psychologist to analyze these types of external reactions um, and external transactions, I should say, in order to determine if their patient's internal, what is, oh God, sorry, I'm losing my fucking mind here. Let me start again. The whole point of transactional analysis is for the psychologist to determine the internal state the internal psychological state of their patient based on these external social situations that they're having. So the stroke balance that I described is sort of a simplified kind of measurable example of what is more commonly known these days as triggering. So if you've ever heard somebody saying, oh, I got triggered or that thing triggered me, um, triggering is pretty much how we tend to slip into certain behavioral patterns when we interact with the world. And they can be good or bad behavioral patterns. Triggering usually um, is talking about a bad behavioral pattern or one that contributes negatively to our lives or the lives of people around us. Um, So the ego state that we're kind of looking for is going to be a collection of these behavioral patterns. In TA, they've defined three different ego states that they're looking for. They are the child, which is a set of behavioral patterns that you learned as a kid. They could be tantrums, pouting, showing off, seeking validation, but they can also be creativity, curiosity, playfulness, and fun. Um, The second ego state is a parent state. These are the behavior patterns that you saw in your parents or authority figures in your life around you. So um, these are criticizing, judging, scolding, or nurturing, problem-solving, and organizing, taking care of people. And then the third ego state is the adult state. Now, this one is the objective end result state of transactional analysis therapy. The idea is that this is an objective, conscious decision-making state that deals with the immediate inputs at hand, with like presence, clarity, and focus. So the idea is, 
if we can stop you from slipping into either your child state or your parent state and keep you in this objective adult state, you can deal with situations as clearly and as focused and objectively as possible without kind of, you know, spinning off into some shitty pattern that has caused you damage in your life in the past. So, fuck. What does it all mean? We're 50 minutes in to this podcast. <laughs> And I haven't really given you any objective advice except for the point is if you find yourself repeatedly doing the same behavior in social situations, it is most likely that you're initially starting feeling a bit of stroke hunger. And in order to get some recognition, you've slipped into a predictable set of behavioral patterns that have gotten you recognized in the past. That could be by adopting a method that you used as a kid or adopting a method that you saw your parents use against you when you were a kid. And if you don't like the patterns that you're falling into, then you can change them by recognizing the childlike or parent-like states that you're going into or the states that other people are going into with their, in your interactions with them. And then instead of reacting to them, try and take a deep breath and act from an objective third-party state, the adult state, where you stare at the actual facts. Don't slip off into fantasy land. Oh, they're trying to bully me. Oh, they hate me. None of that. Deal with the objective facts of what's exactly going on, and you can stop the interaction right there as it's happening. With presence, clarity, and patience, instead of resorting to your script, be aware that you have the script and that you might be possibly lying to yourself in order to get recognition. Instead, try and take a deep breath, accept that it's okay that you don't get recognized one way or the other, and really, truly, the only way to get recognized is to be as authentically present and focused with the person in front of you. Because if you're playing a character, you are not going to get that rec recognition that you want. So if you can do that, it tends to stop the other person from slipping into their one of their behavioral patterns and the both of you can kind of reset the balance and objectively look at each other as two adults interacting with each other from an adult state. Um, and saying that your day-to-day -day behavior is what creates your life generally. So having a bit more presence in your daily interactions will start to help you see where you're seeking attention or validation and where you're generally present and content. And this tiny little act of noticing can help you sort of guide yourself to discovering what your actual reasons are, why you're doing what you're doing, and why you're dreaming up schemes that you sort of keep avoiding or sabotaging. You can almost guarantee that if you're sabotaging something or avoiding something that you know you need to do, it's a very clear indication that your actions are at odds with your actual motivation or desire. So I hope that makes sense. There, there's a fucking lot to unpackage here. And really, transactional analysis basically only starts when we start talking about these ego states. This is kind of the main component of transactional analysis. So I'll go into more detail about that in another podcast because it's kind of a lot to take in. I also have a theory about um, giving and receiving strokes in terms of like doing creative work out in the world or doing charitable work out in the world or whatever it is that um, there are certain things that kind of carry more weight in terms of your own personal interactions with each other. So I'll get into that at another day. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, as always. Um, if you like the podcast, 
Uh, you can please do subscribe to it on iTunes. Uh, follow my pages on Instagram or Facebook. They're just my name, Lorna Bremner. Uh, my website is lornabremner.com. You can find all the episodes there, all the show notes. I'll have details on everything that I talked about and my references for everything I talked about for this podcast up there. And if you really like the podcast and you think to yourself, man, that really was neat. Lorna probably spent at least 10 to 20 hours in her underwear in a brick shed in the middle of the Australian summer heat developing the content for this podcast. And for that, I would love to buy her a smoothie or a delicious cold drink. You can do that. You can go to patreon.com slash Lorna Bremner and become a patron of the podcast for less than the amount of a smoothie per month. You can help me keep my goddamn dream of validation and recognition alive. Thank you again, as always, for listening, and I will talk to you again next week.